0: Hey, everybody, this is Paul from Make Teaching Sustainable, and I want to welcome you to the Make Teaching Sustainable podcast. Today, we are joined by guest David Frangiosa. David Frangiosa is a high school science teacher and the co-author of Going Gradeless. For the past eight years, he has been performing action research on instructional design and assessment strategies. He's a contributor to Teachers Going Gradeless, Teach Better, and School Rubric. You can also find his podcasts and blogs on reimaginedschool.com. Dave and I became acclimated through the Sustainable Teaching Project a couple of years ago, and he so graciously agreed to join us today on the Make Teaching Sustainable podcast. So here goes. Dave, it's great to see you. It's been a while. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm I'm doing pretty well. I'm I'm uh, I'm excited to talk about sustainable teaching with you today. Thanks for joining yeah. me.
1: Oh no problem. Thanks for having me.
0: Appreciate it. Um, well, let's jump right in. Um, please take take a second to tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What's your role? And uh, what keeps you coming back to education?
1: Sure. So uh, I am a high school science teacher. I've been teaching for 17 years. Uh, I teach mainly physics now, um, and my role is uh, I teach a lot of students who have IEPs and 504s. Um, so they they're taking physics not by choice. They're mandated to take physics. So uh, I had to get kind of creative in how I approach them to try and make it interesting while still um, you know adhering to what the school and the state needs me to do uh, in that journey. I um, started investigating different approaches to instruction as well as assessment and grading. Uh, I'm the co author of Going Gradeless, and I maintain a blog and a podcast, which I haven't recorded in a while, but uh, that's over at reimagineschools.com. So that's kind of me in a nutshell.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Just for those of you listening, um... Dave and I actually got a chance to talk two years ago when I started the Sustainable Teaching Project. We talked a lot about assessment. Um, we, we talked a lot about how how going gradeless, how using standards a standards based approach, how getting away from those you know kind of hard quantitative metrics actually is it's better for kids, better for teachers, and therefore it's more sustainable. Um, so in that vein, um, will you will you talk about some of the? and it can be about grading, it can be about otherwise, or other other topics. But can you talk about some of the conditions, practices, or resources that you see currently to be unsustainable? And I'm personally, I'm, I mean, obviously, I'm very interested in this topic, but I'm interested to hear how your thinking has changed over the last two years, given that we're in a different spot than we were two years ago.
1: Sure. Now, I really think the idea of sustainability is situational, right? So... We can put in a lot of effort if we see progress. If we're not seeing progress, even half that effort seems unsustainable to us. So uh, for me, it's all about getting a return on our investment of that effort. So when I started this journey, it was all about assessment and grading because I thought that the effort that I was putting into grading and providing feedback, I wasn't getting that return on investment. And as I went through the process of investigating why that was happening, I started to see that everything that we have in education is completely intertwined, right? We can't talk about assessment and grading without talking about social-emotional learning, without talking about differentiation, without talking about relationships, right? All of that is completely intertwined, and we can't fix one without addressing the others. So when you talk about sustainability, We need to get to a point where our efforts are landing, where students are actually hearing our message. And if we're not building those relationships, if we're not taking into account the um, unique perspectives of the students that are sitting in front of us, I don't care how great that lesson is. I don't care how well you deliver it, right? Nothing's going to land. And then we're going to be frustrated that all of that effort went to waste, right? So for me, it's really setting up an environment where students feel that they can thrive, that they're valued, that they're heard, that they're seen, right? If we can do that, all of the other stuff will start to fall into place. And then our effort, it, it's not wasted effort. And that becomes a little more sustainable because we see that light at the end of the tunnel right? Yeah. Maybe it's more work upfront, but we know that once we lay that groundwork and we build that culture, students are going to benefit. And so for me, even though it's hard, it's worth it. And that makes it sustainable. If that makes sense.
0: That makes so much sense. I mean, that idea of wasted effort is huge to me. So it, Let me, I want to sort of paraphrase to make sure I understand what you're saying. So you're saying it's, it's less, or what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing is that it's less so the effort itself that we're putting into our teaching and into learning and more so that we know that that effort is actually going to manifest or result in tangible progress. So we can, you said, you said we want to see our efforts are landing and that we can see that we find sustainability because we know what we're doing is worth it. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. So, and granted, this is from my perspective. So I know other people may feel differently. um, But from my perspective and what I've seen with my colleagues is if we are doing things where we know students are benefiting and we know that there is progress, we're willing to put in a whole bunch of effort and it doesn't feel like work right? Where it feels like work is when it's just like, okay, this is something that I have to do to check a box and I know nothing's going to come of it. So yeah, if we're getting progress, if we see students growing, we see students thriving, um, for me, that effort is effort well spent. And you know, I mean, I could go an hour or two and not even realize how much time I spent doing something if there's progress. Where- it could be ten minutes when I know that nothing that I do matters, and I'm over it. So yeah, I, I definitely think it's situational, and it's not so much about the effort as it is about knowing that there, there's movement towards a positive result.
0: It it makes me think, and I I feel like I I talk about this all the time, probably because it's so, probably because it's so important. But it, I I just what you're saying makes me think of Daniel Pink's definition of mastery. Are you familiar with his definition of mastery?
1: Not the definition of mastery.
0: No, he doesn't define mastery as like checking a box. He defines mastery as an asymptote. So for for everyone out there who's a math person, right? An asymptote is like, a. and I mean, I'm an elementary school math person, so I'll probably butcher (laughs) this, but you know, the idea behind an asymptote is that you, you never actually reach the, you know, the the, the line, right? It's, it gets closer and closer and closer and closer and closer, but you never actually reach it. And so he he defines mastery as as an asymptote and mastery as a sense so that you never really fully master anything, right? There's always something to be learned. And that's not a bad thing, right? It's not meant to be frustrating. It's just that that's the nature of learning. Like no matter how much you know about a topic, right? You and I together have decades of teaching experience. I would not venture to guess that we feel like we know everything there is to know about teaching, Right. But we are good at what we do at this point, so we're at that part of the asymptote that we're like, you know, we're getting closer and closer, but we'll never actually reach it. But so he says that mastery is actually the ability to connect your efforts to progress. That's what it is. It's not achieving or checking the box. It's that sense that the effort I put into this is leading to something, something worthwhile, and that that builds intrinsic motivation, right? So that is. That, that speaks in my mind that speaks to sustainability for teachers but it also speaks or sorry it speaks to mastery and sustainability for teachers it also speaks to mastery for kids right in what ways are we helping them connect their efforts to progress in the classroom which I think ties in with the gradeless work you know that it's that when for some kids that a or that B is actually really motivating you know for whatever reason um but for the kids who are most marginalized by school, most most of those kids, those grades don't actually motivate them. They actually motivate them to get the heck out as opposed well, but, to engage more.
1: But 100% correct. But even when you talk about the students who are achieving A's, the motivation is the A, not the learning, right? So our focus is still in a different place. And there's a lot of harm that comes from that as well when you talk about uh, anxiety and pressure and stress, Because anything less than an A for those students is a failure, right? So that's an immense amount of pressure. So it's no longer about the learning. It's about how do I maintain this perfect facade of a grade, right? And what I've done is moved more towards, it doesn't matter like what anybody else in the class can do. We don't rank. We don't sort. We don't compare. Here's where you're at in your own individual learning journey, and this is your individual next step, right? And now, people may look at that and say, well, that's more unsustainable than just putting a grade on it. And I get that. And once again, it goes back to the effort, the upfront effort. But now, what I can tell you is my relationships with students are way better. The conversations that I have are organic. I'm now a coach Not a disciplinarian or like we don't have that adversarial relationship anymore. It's just me saying, okay, here's where I can provide value to you. This is where I see, um, you know, maybe you need a little assistance and here's how I can provide it, you know, and they're not as, um, shut down or closed off to receiving that help now. I use a whole bunch of tools. Technology has come a very long way. Um, There's a new product that's actually going to help students get um, AI generated feedback that'll help them based on my prompts. So I took all this time and effort to make these learning progressions along with my my co-author, Elise, um, where students know all right, here's the next step in the progression. Using those prompts, I I put them into this AI engine and they can start generating um, you know, feedback from that. And then I'll just look at their final drafts. So they're getting way more descriptive narrative feedback as opposed to
0: this is wrong. Okay, back up. I am like blown away by this AI generated thing. Like, can you give an example of what, that feedbacks sound. And I'm going to just, I'm going to be just super transparent with you about my bias here. Like Uh I, I worked for an education technology startup for three years. We were opening schools. It was all personalized learning stuff. And one of the engineers one time said something about AI to me. And it just, it like really rubbed me the wrong way. Cause he said something about, and you know, he's trying to be nice and I'll give him that. But he was like, you know, Paul, you're such a great teacher, you know, and, you know, w- wouldn't it be great if we could just like bottle you and like give you to every kid in the country? And I was like, no, actually, <laughs> like I don't think that's great because I think, yeah, I think I'm a good teacher, but like, there's lots of different types of teachers out there and I'm not necessarily the best fit for every single kid, you know? And so he, he, his, his, I think his um, motivation behind saying that was in part because He was trying to give me a compliment, but then also, I think he was also trying to get at this idea of AI in education. And it just scared me because I was like, I don't want to take the human component out of teaching because I think there is something to, like you're saying, right? Relationships and just being able to like, look in someone's eyes and like sit down and have a conversation with them. Like that matters so much to me, but it sounds like what you're saying is that there are entry points for AI to make some things more sustainable without dehumanizing learning So tell me more about like, what does that look like tangibly? Like, give me an example.
1: Sure. So um, for instance, I have 10 learning progressions and those progressions are all based on skills. So um, when you get to advanced and expert levels, then you're integrating the content into that. But um, what I've done is I've created these um, custom prompts where it's up to my proficient level, which is all about structure and how students are communicating. So now, as they're writing a lab report, um, they can, they have three categories that they can choose from. They're going to be able to choose from uh, experimental design, data analysis, or arguing claims. And that'll look at different parts of their lab report. So if they need help writing a conclusion, They'll pick the arguing claims and it's looking for three very specific things. Did you make a claim about, um, you know, two variables? Did you provide evidence that you collected? And are you tying it to some um, relevant scientific concept? All right. And it'll just provide feedback. Uh, So I, I have it set up where it'll do one criticism, provide one suggestion and then any relevant um, any relevant science for that, right? So here it's saying, okay, there wasn't a claim. Next time, include a claim. Um, here's the concept that you might want to think about, right? And so they can do that for drafts. So now I have rolling deadlines. So I students don't have to turn things in by a certain time. So now what they can do is they can look at that, they can revise it. And there's a record of all of that in in the software that I use. And then I'll look at their final product. And then we can have discussions about that, how they use the feedback. And so we're having a richer conversation, not about what's right and what's wrong, about like what feedback did you receive and how did you process that and use that Right. And then change what you're doing. So, um, I mean, it's making it more human. Right. So here I'm I'm having more time interacting with students as opposed to sitting at a desk, writing all these comments. I can have face to face time where we're just sitting down and saying, OK, here's what it said. Here's what that means. If you don't understand it, I can I can tell you. Right. And then I'm looking at final products. So uh, it kind of streamlines that effort of um, providing narrative feedback. Not that I don't, it's just, I'm not doing it on everything, but now it's available to everyone all the time.
0: I mean, this is fascinating to me because it's one, what what I'm connecting with now is that there are some things that you tell all students, right. And like, there's a certain amount of learning that's linear as an elementary school person, right? Like, adding single digit numbers and building fluency in single digit numbers comes before adding two and three digit numbers right so there's a certain amount of linearity to things and if you get down to even like the week week level or like unit level right lessons do generally go in a sequence and once you've been doing this for long enough you can see that there are reliable progressions that you go through right um more or less and then it sounds like what you've also done and correct me if i'm wrong it's sort of used what you've anticipated how your students are going to respond to these things. You've anticipated misconceptions or preconceptions based on your previous experience with previous classes. And you've used that to build a system that can take some of the like repetitive things out that you don't need. Your like, it's like we need our teacher minds for to, to be flexible, to be responsive, to like pivot in the moment like to have those rich conversations with kids like that is the best use of your finite time mm-hmm. in the classroom. Right. But some of these other things that, you know, kids are going to need to know, but they could really just get it by just reading it from the screen, you know, when they're ready for it, it's sort of, am I getting this right? Like it's, you've created the yeah. system so that it's just, yes, saving you time exactly. and giving you time to do what really matters.
1: So, it, the system is designed so that the majority of students in my class, um, you know, will require m- not minimal interaction with me, but like, you know, they'll just clarifying. Right. And I freed up my time to work with the students who I can push to those next levels and then the students who need that additional support. So now the system provides the support to. Uh, a bulk of students who, like you said, can get it off the screen, maybe have some clarifying questions, but now it frees up time. And this is that differentiation piece where I'm having the same prompt, uh, like everybody has the same opportunity. Now, where we differentiate is in the support. Right. And so the the students who need that extra support, I now have the time to do that. You know, so, yeah, that it, the system is designed Uh, specifically for that, to try and meet every student where they are individually in this process.
0: So the word self-pacing is coming to mind. Would you say your classroom is self-paced? No, I would not
1: say it's self-paced. So, And and the reason for that is um, people will progress at their own rate. But the opportunities, um, so I'm not creating something for Paul, something for Dave, something, right? So everybody is engaging with the same lab on the same week, all right? Where you are in that journey in, in terms of that skill development will be very different. So because we have these generalized progressions that apply to everything, it's not we use these progressions in unit one, these in unit four, we have the same progressions, the same 10 progressions for the entire year. So the content becomes the vehicle, not the destination. So we use that to teach these skills. So it's still, content is still very important, but it's not the focus. And so with that, I don't have to self-pace or create all of these different things. We have these low floor, high ceiling prompts where however that student's engaging with it, I know what their individual next steps are, and I use this example all the time. So if I were to ask you to describe like, how an airbag works, if you have a rudimentary knowledge of physics or no knowledge of physics, you, you might say that it inflates and it stops you from hitting the dashboard or the steering wheel or the windshield, and great. That's a reasonable response, but then I know with a couple of probing questions whether You forgot to include content that you know, or I need to supplement with that content. So now you have a richer understanding of what's actually happening in that moment, right? So I don't need a different prompt for every student, right? It's the same prompt where, and now part of the reason why I don't do self-paced, when you think about students who historically have not done well in school, And they see the kid who's crushing it and they're already on unit three when they're struggling halfway through unit one, they're going to say, I'm behind, you know, and then the mentality of that, that is not sustainable to that student. Right. So here, when we have these low floor, high ceiling prompts, everybody's doing the same thing. Whether you're at the beginning level of this progression or the advanced level of this progression, you're still engaging with the same prompt. How I engage with you is what changes. Now, you're not looking at other people and saying you have to catch up. You're doing what you individually need to do. And that, to me, for a student, is way more sustainable.
0: Yeah, you're speaking my uh, my personalized learning love language here. Because I, <laughs> I, um, I, I struggle with self-pacing a lot, and I... I sometimes struggle with mastery, like the mastery approach Well, people will call it mastery. Right. And what they're saying really is that like kids are just checking the boxes in different mm-hmm. cases. And like, there's an element of self pacing that I, you know, cause it's, it kind of become almost a cliche at this point where, where everyone's like, let's let everyone go at their own pace. And it's like, yes, let's let everyone go at their own pace. But like, what does that mean? Does that mean that like some kids are flying through a year's worth of curriculum in four months? No, I don't think that's good. Right. I, I, I think the whole acceleration idea, it, it kind of drives me batty sometimes, the acceleration thing, because, you know, what ends up happening is the kids who score well on standardized tests, they end up flying through content and they, you know, some kids can build that conceptual knowledge just kind of naturally, but most kids can't. And they end up building procedural knowledge, right? That that I think is, is ultimately, it's not sustainable because they end up just memorizing a bunch of procedures and don't actually understand the content and the, you know, the concepts underneath them. And then they get to high school or they, get, and this is my experience as an elementary school teacher mm-hmm. to high school, they get to college and they're being asked to do this really complicated stuff. That's really hard for them to do because they learned everything else in such a shallow manner, you know? So I am very much of the mindset. And this is why I said, you're speaking my love language. Like I'm very much of the mindset that personalized learning shouldn't be Every kid has their own activity and every kid goes at their own pace through a bunch of tasks, but instead that it's open-ended, that there's that low floor and high ceiling, that there's different ways for kids to integrate into the same task. And then like what you said, I mean, literally, it's it's exactly how I feel. The personalization work comes in how I'm interacting with the kids and what the kind of feedback I'm giving them, the kind of scaffolds I'm providing... Or the kinds of tools I'm I'm making available to them so that they can access this grade level task.
1: Yeah. Well now let me kind of jump in there a sec too, because um with the way school is currently constructed, this is the way that we have to do things. Right. So um yeah, and that's the caveat that I say all the time is I'm trying to find a way to minimize the harm done by the structures that we have in place that we have to work within. Now, ultimately, do students need to take physics? No, they don't, right? So there's a lot of stuff that we're telling kids, you need this. And the only reason they need it is because there's another class that says they need it, right? How often are they going to be using this in their future? So- You know, we have to go right now. We're trying to we're we're trying to make what we're doing workable. All right. We need to move to a system where there is more choice. And, um, you know, kids learn like they learn everywhere. So you put them out in a yard with some toys, they're going to learn. You know, we don't need to structure an environment for them to learn. But, you know, so. I think a lot of times the argument is like, how do we get them to learn what we want them to learn? Right. The question is what we want them to learn is that in their best interest. Right now, that question is not going to be answered until way after I retire. So right now, what I'm doing is trying to make the best of a situation that I have to deal with, you know? So, um, you know, I, I get what you're saying in this current model. No, there, there's limited choice, but we need to move towards a model where there's there's more free choice, and you know we're supporting students in figuring out what it is that they enjoy, that what are their individual strengths, because the way that we do school, we're eliminating a lot of opportunity for some students that have really tremendous talent.
0: Yeah, I, this is just, we're doing a lot of system level thinking right now, which I think is so, is, is, is so valuable. Um, and I say that because, I mean, you, you, you kind of led us off in this way too, where you said sustainability is so situational, right? It's dependent mm-hmm. on context. It's dependent on bias. It's dependent on just what you're, what is happening in your current school. Right. And I love that you're saying, you know, I love that you're being, you're, you, you you are doing a really good job of allowing yourself to be really critical of the system without letting it lose without without it um, without losing your ability to function within that system, right You're kind of holding these two ideas together and and yeah, it's like we're trying to give kids the best the best experience we can give them within the constraints that we find ourselves currently. Um, and to me, that's sustain- that's the sustainability discussion too, right? Like we can't burn the system down overnight. In fact, I think we would do more harm than good if we burned the whole system down overnight and just rebuilt it from scratch. And so what I've been encouraging folks to do with these sustainability conversations is, you know, first make a list of like, what what things are you already doing that are sustainable, right? So some of your things, Dave, are like, you know the way you're the way you're doing grading the way you're anticipating you know responses the way you're using ai to support feedback so you can really enrich those conversations after you generate those strengths right then come up with well what what are the sticky spots what are the challenges what things are not currently sustainable and then set a goal based on though based on one of those right choose the the highest impact goal that you think would lead to greater sustainability and just work on that thing. And it really is about, and I'm connecting this back to what you said about like, you know, um, that we we can't, we can't, we just can't change. We have to work within our constraints, right? So find that next right thing, that next goal that feels super high impact that will lead to greater sustainability and just work from there all the while acknowledging that, yeah, we have to work within the constraints of the system. We don't have the power to to change it all overnight, but we can make small shifts that eventually lead to sustained change.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think one of the things that really helped me, and you don't have to change anything about your assessment, your grading, we changed how we talk about students and learning right? Start using asset based language. It's not easy. All right. You know, it really changes your mindset. So when you stop talking about A students and D students, and you just talk about students and where they are and what their assets are and what they need next, um, you start changing the way that you think about them. And then you change the way that you treat them. And the, the relationships really start to improve. And that's something regardless of what constraints you have, anybody can do that.
0: All right, so let me ask you this then. Um, I mean, I I coach teachers. You know, I'm very much of the mindset of going gradeless. You know, u- using standards based grading or standards based assessment. You know, focusing on feedback in the classroom, embedding it into the learning block, as opposed to spending all this time, you know, outside of class writing comments that you're not sure they're going to see. Um, but I still get teachers. Still so work with teachers who are really resistant to change, right? Because mm-hmm. I would imagine it's partially because, you know, they grew up with grades and so they feel familiar and safe. I think some adults in our generation constructed their own definition of success within how well they did in school, which was measured by grades and standardized tests. Um, and then I think some people are just afraid to change, you know, they're like, this is working for me and I just, I don't want to change. So what would you say to those people? What would be your first step or your first recommendation to get them to just like move the needle ever so slightly? What would that be?
1: Don't change anything about the way you run your class. Change the way you talk about students, right? So I don't care if a student gets an A and they've gotten A's all year, they're still not an A student. They're right. Don't label them. Don't label students. Don't talk about deficits. Right. Try to move to a more asset-based approach to speaking about children. Right? Try and find a strength and grow them from there. Right? You can use whatever you want to assess them. You can use whatever you want to grade them. Just don't talk about them like they're numbers.
0: Can you give give I, I know what asset-based teaching is or asset-based thinking is, but I would imagine some people listening, that might be a new term for them. So can you maybe define that in the way you understand it? And can you give an example of like, obviously don't say any names, but think of a situation of a student who, you know, if we were labeling them would be like a D or F student, right? Sure. Tell me a story of how you would go through that process of taking an asset-based approach and then supporting that student to, to grow. All right.
1: So every student that walks into your room has a unique experience and there's something that they are good at, right? There, um, There's an entry point into a conversation where we can get to growth. So we just need to find what that is, right? And um, when you look at my progressions, we have, uh, I'm calling them on ramps to education, Right. Um, every progression that I have, uh, the beginning level is an authentic try. So if that's uh, a conclusion, I write a conclusion. That's something they can control. They can see themselves on that rubric. So even a a student in my class who um, really is having challenges understanding the concepts isn't quite grasping how to formulate um, a conclusion they can still write a conclusion and then I can approach them and say oh great I see you wrote a conclusion now do you notice any relationship between two variables so we're starting with something that they did it doesn't matter how basic it is right it's still positive it's an asset they brought something to the table now if you want to go from um like a a more concrete approach. I had a student this year, couldn't care less about physics, but loves cars, right? He wants to be a mechanic. And in terms of engineering and design and thinking in that vein, um, there's really not much that I could teach him. So during those projects, when, when we would do our engineering design projects, um, he would build these elaborate things and um, so we were doing um we we're doing shock absorbers or like you know, a crumple zone he, he made shock absorbers as his crumple zone but he only made one model and so we had the discussion of okay great that's a very innovative design for a high school physics class to protect the night going down a ramp how many times did you get to test it He's like, well, I only had one. It was just so in-depth that I only had time to build one version. said, okay, so next time, start with a simpler design. Even if you're using the same concept, don't use the good materials, right? See if it works and then see what portions of it you can fix. So now I'm getting him to think about iterations starting from, right, your design is on point. All right. Now let's talk about materials. Let's talk about construction. Let's see, right? Start thinking about iterations of this. So I got him to his next step using his strength of design. Right? So he came in with that. I didn't teach that to him. But I found it and I used it to leverage it.
0: I love that. And like there's an element of of letting go of some control here, you know that I'm hearing you know, you weren't micromanaging his experience, you weren't trying to get him towards a necessarily a predetermined product, but instead relaxing a bit into the process of learning um, and still providing meaningful feedback along the way. Still like, sounds like there were still constraints around what you were doing, where he wasn't doing whatever he wanted, right? But like you were giving him some agency or like allowing him to connect with his own agency, I should say. Um, And I think that that's, so one of the one of the one of the mindset shifts that emerged from the sustainable uh teaching um project, <laughs> what's the word? The sustainable teaching project data was this idea of leaning into the process over the product, right? Mm-hmm. And and that whole chapter actually is really about assessment because when we take a process driven approach to assessment. We do all the things that you've said, right? We take this asset-based approach. We find strengths. We stop ranking and ordering kids. And instead we like, you know, leverage those relationships to provide meaningful feedback. We let go of some of the control and we let go of that. I mean, that's the danger of the predetermined product, I think, in our classrooms is then what we do is we measure our kids up next to it. It's like a scarcity mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's uh it is a deficit-based model. Like this is my product. Here's where my kids are. And then here's this gap between what my product is and where my kids are. And that just naturally forces us to deficit frame them. Right. Um, And so everything you're saying is that sort of process based assessment. But there also is this element of I've got to let go a little bit. I've got to let the kids make mistakes and I've got to be okay with their product not turning out the way that I might have imagined their product to turn out. But instead, what I need to do is train myself to see the value in what they've learned through making mistakes.
1: Now, I I just want to clarify something. And I know what you mean by leverage, but I just want to make sure it's very clear to the listeners that when we say leverage relationships, we're leveraging what we know about students to provide value for them. We're not leveraging that relationship to say, hey, you like me, do what I say right? That's a very different thing. And, and, you know, I I've heard some people when they're saying leverage relationships, talking about it in that negative light of maybe coercing students. It's not about coercing, right? My mindset is I need to find what students need from me. And I have to stop thinking about what
0: I want from them. That's big. Like that's going to, I know I'm going to sit with that for the next week or so like that is because no, truly, because it's it, I think it is easy to fall into that space where you are leveraging relationships to get what you need. Right. Um, or to get, to get to the scores or to get kids to comply basically. But, um, but that's not what we want. No, that's not what we want. Whew. And now I'm thinking through <laughs> those times where, like, I was leveraging relationships to kind of get kids to comply, but not – Yeah, here's the thing, right? Kids can pick up on BS. Like, they oh, totally. know when you're trying to manipulate them. They know when you're trying – they know when you have those sort of, like, extrinsic, superficial incentives – to get them to do what you want them to do. And I will say, I, I got to say, as an elementary school teacher, it's it's kind of a fine line, right? Or not, maybe not a fine line. It's just, tr- it's tricky. Because at the end of the day, like, I need to get my third graders how to, to learn how to read. Like, I need, I need and some of them don't want to do that, right? So like, I have to balance extrinsic and intrinsic incentives to get them to buy into it, right? And so sometimes that is like, because I mean, we think we'd all agree, right? It's important for kids to learn how to read because no matter what they want to do in their lives, they're going to have to be able to read at some point. Right. And if they can't, if they're illiterate, then that's going to be harmful for them in the long run. I'm actually thinking about this student I work with right now and like she's really resistant to reading and and, you know, there is an element sometimes of like I'm going to leverage this relationship to get her to do what I want her to do because I need her to learn how to read. Like I I need her to do that. She doesn't, she doesn't know it now, but that's going to be really important for her down the road. Um, But that said, right. Like that should probably be used sparingly. And, Mm -hmm. and there, there, we should be more often than not, you know, not, we, we should be more often than not using those relationships, not to get what we need, but instead to enrich the lives of our students. And that's, that's, I think it's really easy to lose sight of that in schools.
1: Oh yeah, totally. Um, You know, because we are in a system that does frame it, that there are outcomes that need to be met, right? The schools are ranked on test scores, teachers, there's a lot of pressure on teachers to make sure that those students uh, achieve those test scores and it's all artificial, you know? So, um, but even though it's artificial, it doesn't mean it's not real.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's what I, what I encounter in working as a coach and as a consultant is that most people feel like these metrics were kind of governed by this, the structures that were governed, governed by are not helpful and create more barriers than they, than they give us, you know, freedom to actually reach kids. But we all acknowledge that like, we don't have the power to change them over. And I mean, this goes back to what you are saying before, like, we don't have the power to change them overnight, and we have to do the best we can within the system that we're working within currently. Um, yeah. Well, Dave, it's been great to have you. Um, I feel like we have a lot more to talk about, so I'll have to probably have you back at some point. Um, Sounds good. Into this, um, I appreciate you so much, one, for participating in the Sustainable Teaching Project back in 2021, and then also for reconnecting today with me. Um, I'm curious, um, can you, can you just share with listeners where they can learn more about you and your work?
1: Uh, Best place to find me is uh, reimagineschools.com. And that's our website. Uh, You can get me via email there. It has links to my Twitter, blog posts, podcasts, you know, so everything um, that you would
0: need is is on that site. Awesome. And then your book is called Going Gradeless. And who's your Um co-author again?
1: So on the book, it's Elise Byrne. She has since uh, gotten remarried, and it's Elise Naramore.
0: Awesome. Well, yeah, you can check out um, Dave and Elise's book, Going Greatless, as well. Dave, thanks so much for for being here and for chatting with me today. And Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks so much. And that concludes this week's episode of the Make Teaching Sustainable Podcast. A really special thank you to Dave Frangiosa for joining us this week on the Make Teaching Sustainable Podcast. Please be sure to check out his website and his books. Um, As a reminder, you can find me, Paul, at Teaching on Instagram and Twitter you can also head to maketeachingsustainable.org to learn a little bit more about the Sustainable Teaching Project and the work I'm doing to help make teaching sustainable. And also, if you'd like to be a guest on the Make Teaching Sustainable podcast, you can shoot me an email at paul at maketeachingsustainable.org. Hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.